Hello, and welcome to Cognation, the podcast about neuroscience, technology, and other stuff we like. With your hosts, me, Joe Hardy. And I'm Rolf Nelson. On this episode, we speak with Dr. Aaron Scherger, assistant professor at Chapman University, where he is a member of the Institute for Interdisciplinary Brain and Behavior Sciences. Dr. Scherger is doing some really influential work on the role of conscious will and behavior and what neuroscience can tell us about that. Yeah, so we talk about a couple of Dr. Scherger's recent papers uh, and the relation that they have to philosophical ideas of free will and some old experiments from the 1980s that he's, that he's shown some evidence against. So I think you'll find this a really interesting conversation. Yeah, it's a great show. Hope you enjoy. Dr. Scherger, thank you so much for being on the show. I uh, really appreciate your, your taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's it's really a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Yeah, we wanted to talk about your research. Uh, you've done some really interesting stuff lately in the area that sort of is at this intersection of, you know, brain activity, free will, understanding how the conscious mind controls or, you know, or does not control, uh, the, you know, behavior. What got you interested in this area, this topic matter, and, you know, Give us maybe a little bit of background that sort of motivates your research. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, initially, what I was really um, fascinated and passionate about was consciousness research. And for whatever reason, um, the research, uh, pretty well-known research by Benjamin Libet on, that, that was considered relevant for free will was something that floated around in those circles. Uh, even though you might think that free will and consciousness are sort of different topics, um, I think they have a pretty strong intersection uh, because we like to think of free will as something as as acts that emerge from consciousness. So we have a we have a conscious intention, uh, and at least the way it feels to us is that that conscious intention manifests as an action, and so there is this uh, sense in which. Uh, research on free will just fits right in that context. Uh, and one and and one thing. So on a on a show a few episodes ago, we we treated this topic too, and we talked about uh, Dan Wagner's work on on this, which you may be familiar with. So his mm-hmm. so his book and his article that um, discuss uh, the origins of of uh, in uh, free intent. Yeah, and the feeling in, in his case that the feeling of conscious will, uh, right? That that what needed to be explained was the the reason why we felt that we were in control of this action, right? And and is that feeling justified? And 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 of course, in in Wegner's um, from Wegner's point of view, it's maybe kind of not so justified. Um, his 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 whole thing was that you know this is maybe an illusion. Um, in fact, that was the title of his book. That's right. The illusion of conscious will. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, but that's how I got first introduced to the topic was, was, um, in fact, an, a, a conference that I had gone to very early in my career that was about consciousness. Uh, but there were several talks about, uh, um, conscious will and several, those, those talks all referred back to, uh, this work by Libet. And that's what first got me interested in it. Um, and so I got to know that work 
Um, and as I thought more about it, and I think this this sort of evolved over a period of a few years, in fact, um, I wondered I wondered less and less about conscious free will, that aspect of it, and more about this readiness potential, which was the brain signal that was used as a sort of uh, timeline uh, for the experiments that Libet did. Um, it's this, uh, you know, for, for listeners who might not be familiar with it, um, it's an electrical potential that comes from activity in the motor cortex, and it builds up very slowly over the period of maybe about a second uh, in advance of a spontaneous voluntary movement. So a movement that you make without a cue or without a stimulus. Okay, so I can take a stab at describing what I understand about the Libet experiments, and then maybe you can correct me if I'm making any um, mistakes or not describing it right. So um, so in Libet's experiments, uh, he was looking at the origins of an act of what he would call free will, I guess. So the act that he took was to uh, make a small motor movement, uh, just flicking your wrist or moving your finger, was it? Uh, yeah. Maybe he had a couple, a couple versions of this. Yeah, I think it was a flick of the wrist, yeah. So you would, you would sit there, and w- at the moment where you felt the intent to move your wrist, or you felt the urge to move your wrist, you would move it. So this would be a presumably an act that wasn't cued by something outside, and it was entirely... You know, it originated entirely with the person. It was an act of free will, spontaneous will. And what, okay, so the other thing that Libet has them do is they're watching a clock, so it's rotating quickly. And what they're to do is to note the exact time at which they felt the intention to move, right? So, uh, what right, so find, like time, time zero would be the time that they moved, and time, you know, minus whatever would be the, the time that they first felt that intention to move. And then, yeah, yep. they're sort of working back from there. That's right. And, and so I, th- so if I'm correct here, so he finds about maybe 200 to 150 milliseconds before the action, people report the intent to move or report noticing the intent to move. However, this is preceded uh, by a few hundred milliseconds by the readiness potential so that uh, you can you can predict when someone is going to move prior to when they notice the intent to move. In other words, there's something that precedes the intent to move. And the idea is that um, this indicates that an act of free will is always preceded by some preparatory neural activity. Right. Uh, and that that's about where I that's where, about where my understanding is at. So everything you said was correct except the predict. Aha, okay. Um, You cannot really predict, I mean, in the strictest sense of the word. So predict, I'm a real stickler about that. Um, You know, predict means tell the future. And so if you, you know, people have tried to do this. And the reason I can say that with, with some confidence is that those attempts haven't really worked very well. So, and I guess this, this is particularly relevant to uh, brain-computer interfaces, too. So if you're trying to use this readiness potential for any kind of predictive power, you're saying it's not, it, it's it, really not going to. Exactly. It, it works slightly better than a coin toss. Um, mm. 
works better than a coin toss, but to say that it, to say that you could predict that, that I don't think is justified. I mean, you know, again, having something that works better than a coin toss for me that doesn't count as predicting. So if you if you try to lock on to that to the readiness potential and you try to detect it in real time and use that to predict when the movement is going to happen in advance, that just doesn't work very well. So. In other words, Libet is looking at these and he's he's making a post hoc interpretation of what these readiness potentials are. That's based right. On, based on when the movement starts. That's right. And the, the readiness potential by definition is something that you recover in the time locked average. So you have to take X number of instances of one of these spontaneous movements, take the EEG traces from those and average them together in order to see anything. If you look at a single instant instance, uh, it's a very, very weak signal compared to the noise, and you pretty much can't see it. Okay. So the idea here is that, you know, in the experimental condition, you, before you do the analysis, you know already when the movement in fact took place. Yes. Uh, and so there's this post hoc bias where you you know you're time locking after the fact to that moment where the movement happened and if you average backwards from that you in fact see a pattern that looks really nice it's a you know very smooth pattern when averaged across a, number, a large number of trials that's what, that's absolutely correct yeah and, and what you're suggesting and what your research shows is that that is kind of well is is rather misleading yeah yes yeah, it's a biased sample. It's a highly biased sample. You only looked at uh, instances where there actually was a movement. Most of the time during that experiment was spent not moving, and only a, fra a small fraction of the time was actually spent moving. Um, so a couple of analogies I give for this to just help, you to help people kind of wrap their heads around it is uh, one of them is with, is, is with weather forecasting. So imagine that you're trying to learn how to predict rainfall based on weather data. And uh, you do that with a sample of data that is in which it always rains. Right? So you have a sample of data of weather during the day of time periods where that time period always culminates in rainfall you're really missing the big picture right because you're what whatever you learn from that exercise it's going to it's going to be difficult to use that to generalize to the to the reality uh because much of the time it doesn't rain um and you have in in order to be able to learn about in order to be able to predict the onset of rainfall and we can we can say well maybe that's analogous to the onset of a movement um, you need to learn about what's happening when, when it's going to rain and, and learn about what's happening when it doesn't rain. Um, one of the, one of the consequences of ignoring the negative examples is that you, you, you may make lots of false alarms. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. And I, I, yeah. Yes. And, and, and th that was in fact, at least in the research to date that I know of, trying to build a BCI, a brain computer interface that that works off of the readiness potential 
one of the main problems they've had is is keeping that false alarm rate down. Yeah, and you know the research that you've done on this topic, I think, is you know along with you know along with your colleagues, has been very very interesting from the perspective of shedding some interesting light on both the methodology that you should use, but also then of course what that implies for you know the readiness potential itself. So maybe we could dive into a little bit of this work that you've done recently, and uh, you know talk about the time course of neural activity predictive of impending movement uh, and maybe a little bit about that experimental paradigm and you know what you think is important there yeah so this was really um, an offshoot of work we had done earlier back in 2012 um, where we we argued that the readiness potential reflects um, ongoing, you might say, random or stochastic fluctuations in neural activity that get sort of caught in the flash photo of, of time-locked averaging. So because you're, av you're, you're locking to the onset of movement, um, you, if those uh, ongoing fluctuations tend to favor uh, movements at certain times rather than others, so if in fact, at crests, right? At crests in those fluctuations, if that if movement is more likely than uh, at those times, then by time locking to the onset of the movement, you'll recover this slow uh, fluctuation, which is in fact stochastic and ongoing, and does not reflect something preparatory or intentional. Now, um, now, in Libet's experiments too. So this. I mean, the task that he chose is one where, um, so if it, you're just kind of sitting there and either moving your wrist or not, you're kind of right on the borderline, or it would be, it, it, it seems as though it would be a, a particular situation where it's easy to introduce very little to get your hand to actually move. So it seems like a situation that's particularly susceptible to any random noise that might be floating around in the system, right? Right. In fact, that's that's spot on. Um, that is, that's exactly what uh, we were thinking um, when we came up with these experiments. Uh, was well, hold on a minute. Let's, for the moment at least, let's set aside the whole debate about free will and compartmentalize this a little bit and look just at this. Uh, look just at the facts. As much as people have complained about this task of Libet saying, oh, well, this is such a weird task. Nobody ever does that in real life. Nobody sits there and performs a movement spontaneously for no good reason, uh, just for the heck of it, um, which is what you're asking people to do. I said, okay, fine. Let's set that aside, though, because the fact is you bring people in the lab and you ask them to do this weird, awkward, unusual kind of task. Fact is that they do it. They do mm -hmm. it. They can do it. Takes mm -hmm. at first, they kind of say, "Well, gee, that's a little weird. What do you mean?" And then after a few tries, they're like, "Okay, I get it," and they do it. So, okay, the the brain has a solution for that problem, and the question we posed was, "What could that solution be? What is the brain doing that enables it to produce a movement spontaneously uh, without any good reason and at sort of a randomish time?" Um, and what 
what came to me right away was, well, well, let's say I was trying to build a robotic arm that could do this task. How might I do that? And immediately I thought, well, that's mm -hmm. easy, right? I just, I just bring up the noise close to the threshold and I just wait. Um, and so if you're, th and if you're thinking about how, I don't, I don't know if it's exactly how participants are experiencing it, but it is, it, it, you're right. It is a, I mean, it is a problem for participants in the experience experiment where they want to perform as well as possible. And so they have to understand the task and that you don't, you don't necessarily need to have any reference to free will to perform this task. It seems like you say, if you can, you know, if you can program this sort of behavior in a, in a simple robot, then it's probably true that it's not something that absolutely requires um, that sort of free will that we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's been argued in the past. And I, and I, I largely agree that, you know, if there is an act of free will involved in this task, it's the act of accepting to follow the instructions of the experiment in the first place. Hmm. Um, and the rest is, is, you know, you could say mechanical. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's not to say that there aren't f other factors in this experiment. I've thought a lot about it. And of course, there's no doubt, like I do that. I mean, I've sat there and done the task myself many, many, many times. And of course you, you quickly realize, okay, there's more layers to this than, than just random fluctuations in a threshold. You're thinking things like, oh, well, I moved kind of a little bit early on the last one. So maybe I should wait a little bit longer on this one. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, th there's, there's some strategizing that goes on. Um, there's, we found in fact, a slight, uh, a very slight, but very consistent preference for the bottom mm -hmm. of the clock. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So, I had wondered about what sorts of regularities you might find, because if people are adopting some strategy, it's likely that there's, I mean, they're going to, they're going to perform in a regular kind of way, in a right. biased kind of way. Yeah. So there, are, I think there are all there are multiple levels of biases, and 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 strategies and and uh, influences on on the eventual outcome in that kind of experiment. Um, we just latched onto one of them, which is that you know if if background noise in the motor system is somehow involved then this makes perfect sense. It explains a lot of things. Um, that background noise gets caught in the act in a way because you're time-locking to the movement. Um, can, you, can you say anything about what we, what we might know about background noise in, in um, this sort of situation? Yeah, or in any situation, in or fact. Or in any situation. In yeah. any situation. What we know is that, and this is a little bit hard to explain without a visual uh, but I'll do my best. Um, we know that noise in, in the brain, and in fact, noise in nature in general, if you just look in, in time series in nature, you don't see what's called white noise. Uh, white noise is noise where every sample is independent of the one before it. So, so at, totally random. Totally ra Well, random, right? And yes, totally random. Yeah. Uh, but the key is that each sample uh, is drawn from a certain distribution, and the next sample is drawn from that same distribution, but completely independent of the one just before it. Mm -hmm. um, so all frequencies are equally present uh, in white noise. 
um, the kind of noise that you see in, in nature and in neural systems at all levels of a spatial scale um, is pink noise uh, mm -hmm. or autocorrelated noise. Lots of different ways to say it. Some people say one over F noise. Um, so it's if you look at it by eye, it's noise that has a kind of slow, drifty character to it. It it fluctu it, it, it fluctuates all around, uh, but you see this. It's like waves on the surface of the ocean. Uh, it's slow. It's drifty, um, and it's dominated more by the lower frequencies. And there's ever less and less energy in the higher and higher frequencies. Um, so hopefully that makes some sense about it. it when you see it by eye, you can just see sure. the difference. You see, ah, oh, that's white noise. That's that pink, that noise. pink noise shows up in a lot of um, different contexts. So for example, if you look at the distribution of uh, energy, vis you know, visual energy in a, in a natural scene, you see that same sort of pattern. Uh, and I, but I think in, in the, uh, you know, in the world of EEG, there's a lot made of the different slow wave oscillations and their meaning, right? There's, there's a lot uh, of research and activity trying to understand what those uh, different frequencies are doing. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And, but this idea of, of um, one over F noise or pink noise, this is the component okay. that's not periodic. Um, so you may have oscillations going on. Imagine if you could factor those out, you still have this slow random drifting going on uh, that may not necessarily be oscillatory. Um, and that's, that's at least the factor that we think is playing into this, um, is this non-oscillatory random drift in, in uh, neural firing in, so in you, the motor cortex, yeah. So would you describe the the drift as the reason why it might be uh, hovering around the threshold and sort of poke over the threshold more often? Well, then, then say white, then if it was say pure white noise. Well, one, one difference is, I mean, hopefully that noise, that drift is well below the threshold most of the time. Otherwise, most of the time, right. Which is why the, the situation, yes, is, is odd for the Libet experiments. Yeah, right. Right. So one way to think of that, one way to model that is to say, well, in the context of that experiment and given the, the instructions that you're given by the experimenter, you get into this mode where you're just right at the threshold of moving, right? Then you're, you're, at any moment, you could tip the scales. Um, you're, mm -hmm. you're in a state of heightened readiness to move, let's say. Um, one way to model that is to say, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, um, raise the whole, uh, noise floor up closer to the threshold, um, and kind of play around right at that level. And in that context, the, that random drift can sometimes tip the scales, can sometimes cross the threshold and favor you moving at that moment at a crest, say more so than at a trough in the, in those fluctuations. So random thought here, I wonder if this is something that would play into uh, offsides in a football game. So jumping the gun a little bit, or maybe even, you know, in a track race too, jumping the gun. So as you're right at that 
you know, absolutely ready to start the race, anything will set it off or a very small fluctuation will set it off. Right. Yeah, that's a beautiful example, actually. I hadn't thought of the offsides one, but yeah, I think that's it, 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 the same sort of context. So yes, absolutely. I mean, if you could, uh, those are those, both of those contexts would be difficult to get in there and look at what's happening in the brain. But imagine that you could, mm -hmm. uh, and you could sort of take a microscope to what's going on. You may well see that right some uh, uh, ongoing random fluctuations might contribute to that happening uh, when it does happen. So, so the, this one over f noise is causing some artifacts when you time lock your analysis to uh, to a movement event. Are there other artifacts that that might also play into this if you time lock to that to that event? There are other potential artifacts. Um, one of the main ones that we've thought about, and actually that's so coming back, we've kind of digressed from the time course uh, uh, study um, that you mentioned. But um, yeah, one of them is that uh, that that noise can uh, at sort of at any moment um, as long as you're kind of close to the threshold, um, could potentially, right, t uh, tip those scales. And if that's the case, um, then one of the things that predicts is that your, uh, your ability, your ability to predict the movement based on that signal is actually going to be not, is going to be poor, uh, and it's not, it's in fact going to not look like the signal that you see. You're going to see this slow ramping over that goes back quite far in time. And that might lead you to think that you can predict quite far ahead in time. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that our model predicted is that, that, that that's, um, that's a mistake. That in fact, that's a mistaken assumption. Uh, then in fact you you won't be able to predict very well um, and that's what we did in that study the time course of of uh, neural activity predictive of impending movement is uh, we tried so we 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 took a we took a situation where uh, we had uh, time little little windows of time little epochs that ended with a movement and pretty well matched epochs that ended without a movement. And we used machine learning to try and tell them apart. So in this one, okay, so a participant would, would advance the slide and it would either need to be advanced by them clicking to advance it, or it would advance on, on its own at a time based on their um, history of pressing the button. Is that correct? Right. The, the distribution of delays on the trials when it advanced automatically was drawn from their own distribution of, of waiting times on the trials where they, where they advanced the slide manually. So that okay. by the end of the experiment, on average, the window of time uh, was, was roughly of equal length, whether they moved or didn't move. So then you can get, you can get a clear signal that compares the same situation when they actually make the movement and when they 
don't actually make any motor movement. And and what do we see in the comparison between these? Well, when we try to predict those, when we try to, let's, let's not use the word predict, when we try to classify those mm-hmm. using machine learning, at, at each position of a sliding window, um, surprisingly, what you might think is that, oh, well, we should basically recover the shape of the readiness potential, this slow ramp. Um, but in fact, what we find is that you don't get a slow ramp you get something that is pretty much near chance until almost the onset of movement and then suddenly lurches up to near perfect, um, near ceiling. So in the, sorry. So, <clears throat> so just trying to understand no, this ahead, a little Joe. bit better. Um, in this case, so again, back to the task, the participants are looking at a slideshow. It goes from a gray screen to a picture. It's like an, Looks like they're natural scenes or something like that. Nature photos. Okay. Yeah, just so you, nature you're going photos. Between the right. gray screen and a nature photo. And in the on the manual trials, you press a button to advance the slide. And on the automatic trials, the slide is advanced at a time that's selected from the distribution of your button presses uh, from past trials. Cool. And so then in right. that case, you're talking about you, you, the ones where you press the button are what you call active trials. And the ones where you don't press the button are called passive trials. Is that, is that right too? Okay. Correct. And then, so if you look at That's the time correct. course yeah. of just the, the potential that you could in the active trials, you see this pattern that, you know, if you average across all these trials across the participants, it, you do see this ready, readiness potential quite clearly in the active trials, but less so in the passive trials, just visually looking at the, at the graphs, right? Right. I mean, you'd, you'd think you, you, you might see nothing at all, in fact, in the passive trials. Um, but one of the things you mentioned before was what you asked before, are there any other potential artifacts? Um, and one of them might might be anticipation, um, and that's a tricky one because it's always going to be there. So when you're whether you move yourself or move or let the slide advance by itself, you are anticipating a visual right, event. and you have some sense of how long it's um, going to take because while you're not necessarily in control of this trial, you know basically the distribution of the timings that it will advance. Yeah, you know, you 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 probably have a rough, or your brain has a rough uh, handle on the distribution. You don't know the exact time on any given trial, uh, but you can, you know, you're anticipating that something is going to happen soonish. Um, that being a, a visual event, a, a slide transition. Um, so it, the the experiment, in a way, controls for that controls for anticipation, um, controls to some degree for, for the, uh, the issue of autocorrelation. Um, but there's still, uh, there's still some anticipation that it is tough to get, to get around, which is you're anticipating in the, on the trials, when you move yourself, you're anticipating some, your, your brain is anticipating some, uh, proprioceptive feedback that then you don't have on the 
on the uh, on the automatic trials on the on the passive trials. Um, but all that really does is makes it even more likely, not less, but more likely that we should be able to classify these trials, that we should be able to tell them apart. And and so I think that makes it more uh, salient uh, a result that we that we really don't tell them apart until quite close to the onset of movement, which is one of the things we were predicting. So what is so what's the interpretation of this then? How do you how do you make sense of what? Um, I mean, what is a readiness potential? I mean, is it something that exists, and and what does it signify? Well, I mean, our best guess now, based on the research we've been doing, uh, is that the early part of the readiness potential. So, if going back as you know as far back as it goes, one of the th one of the things about the readiness potential that's stood out for me is how variable it is from one from one individual to another. Mm. Um, compared to other neural phenomena, it's it's insanely variable. Uh, which is which is strange already, right? Yeah, okay. it is strange. It's it's suspicious, right? Um, so for some people, it goes back maybe a half a second. For some people, it goes back a second or even a second and a half. Um, that's huge. Uh, yeah, that's big. much longer than I had I had assumed it could be. Yeah, yeah. It, it. I mean, I've seen it drift back really far in some subjects, um, far back in time. Um, so there, yeah, there is that. So you may only have, I guess you may only have intuitions or educated guesses about what it might be reflecting, but uh, if you could, you know, if you could guess, what would you, how would you describe it? Well, I, th I think I like to keep explanations as simple as possible until I'm forced to do otherwise. So, right, right, sure. Um, and, and so here I think what I would say you can describe the readiness potential as a composite of two things. One are uh, spontaneous fluctuations, slow, spontaneous sort of one over F noise, um, that uh, which uh, which happens, or at least crests in that noise happen to coincide with the onset of movement. Um, that accounts for the early part of the readiness potential up to about uh, two tenths of a second before the movement. Up to about the time when Libet's subjects reported feeling the urge to move, that's, by the way. Uh, yeah. uh, that's, that's an interesting, yeah. Okay. Uh, right about there, two-tenths of a second, 150 milliseconds, somewhere around there. Um, and then the latter part of the readiness potential, which is where it's really more peaky, it has a kind of a sharp peak. Um, that's actually a, a, a motor potential coming from primary motor cortex that's literally sending a signal to your muscles to move. Um, and that accounts for the latter part of the readiness potential. So there, this early part, I would say, I call it pre-decisional. You haven't technically decided yet, or your brain hasn't technically decided to move yet. The You're threshold. just uh, collecting evidence, I guess? Yeah, collecting evidence, weighing whether or not to move, um, but not having decided yet. And then at about 150, 200 milliseconds before the movement, that's actually when the threshold is crossed. And that leads to a burst of activity in the primary motor cortex and then an, and a subsequent movement. Um, and what's nice about that explanation is that it jives really well with, with a lot of research. Um, 
So for one thing I just mentioned, uh, that just happens to be the time when subjects very consistently over many, many studies, not just Libet's, uh, when subjects report that that was when they felt they had decided to move. That was when they felt the decision had been made. Um, and uh, uh, there's, there's an abrupt increase in corticospinal excitability at about 150 milliseconds before movement, uh, before a spontaneous movement. Um, and uh, a more recent study from John Dylan Haynes' group showed that it looks like the, the sort of point of no return, the point at which you can no longer withhold a movement if you're, if, if you're asked to, uh, is, is around uh, 200 milliseconds before the movement uh, onset as well. Why don't we take a short break and then we'll get back with some of the implications of this. Quick plug, if you like the show, please share with a friend, rate us on iTunes, and like us on Facebook. You can also get more details about our episodes at cognation.fireside.fm. All right, we're back. Uh, so, Aaron, thank you uh, again for being on the show. Appreciate it. Super enjoying the conversation. Wanted to dive in uh, a little bit more on some of the specifics of your classifiers that you're using in this uh, particular study, because uh, I think it's interesting from a practical perspective, but I think it also might shed some light on uh, sort of the theoretical elements as well. So in, in this research, you showed that you could build a classifier based on the uh, bias data that is the way that this research has typically been done and, and get very good predictions far in advance of the movement in most cases. But that was not the case when you did this more controlled approach. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that was really one of the things that we wanted to highlight uh, with this work. Because uh, if we just showed that uh, you know y you're you're unable to classify these two different kinds of uh, episode episodes that end in a movement and episodes that end without a movement, um, if you're unable to classify those before the time of movement, one could argue, and they'd be justified, that that's just a null result, and a null result is just a null result, right? Um, Right, maybe it's just not a good model, right? Maybe it's just not a good model, although there are reasons to doubt that. I think it is an excellent model, in fact, but um, but let's just say for the sake of argument. Um, and so what we wanted to do was to say, well, let's, let's look at what happens when we only use the data with movement. Um, if we're right, then maybe we should, uh, we should regain the ability, well, uh, apparently, regain the ability to predict uh, when we, or to classify when we work only with the data that ends in a movement. And that's in fact what happened. So without going into detail about exactly how we did that, um, we, we worked only with the data where there was a movement. Uh, and when you do that, you have to, you know, when you're doing this kind of class, this is a binary classification. When you're doing a binary classification, you need both positive and negative exemplars, 
and you know you train your classifier on a, on a subset of those and then you test it on another subset you do that in a sort of round-robin fashion that's called cross-validation it's to make sure that you're actually generalizing that your classifier isn't just memorizing the data um, and so when when we do that uh, with only the uh, data that ends in a movement well we had to use what do we use for the negative exemplars right because we only have positive ones so what we do, what we did and this is just something that has been done in the past in other studies is we said well let's look let's take a little window of time that's really far back in time from the movement and we'll just imagine that it's far back enough in time from the movement that probably it's got nothing to do with the movement and we'll call that our negative example and uh, then we'll we'll position the sliding window somewhere else closer to, closer to the movement and we'll call that our positive example and we'll just ask the classifier to tell those apart and what we predicted if the onset of movement tends to coincide with crests in background fluctuations uh, then that method of classifying comparing some early time window to time windows at other positions uh, that you're guaranteed to have better and better and better accuracy as you get closer to the movement um, and that's what happened so we 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 could tell those apart exceedingly well um, almost too well and that's in fact just the point we were trying to make so this is almost certainly artifactual uh, we've convinced ourselves that we can we can quote unquote predict uh, that's just because we only have yeah for data some of these subjects the you know you place. see some really and when we great predictions area under the curve approaching like 0.9 at a second and a half before the movement which is yeah very suspicious very suspicious and that that was i mean that was the the goal of that whole exercise so we thought we we thought that that might arouse suspicion uh, and when we looked at the results, we were right. I mean, we were like, yeah, this does arouse. If I saw this, I would be really suspicious. Um, and I think that suspicion is totally justified. Um, because when we then repeat the whole exercise, but now we reintroduce the, the, the data where you don't move. And now I think that's a genuine comparison. That's This is a genuine task for a, a classifier to do. Uh, you have... Uh, positive and negative examples both and you have to learn to discriminate between them then that ability to 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 classify early on early with respect to the onset of the movement just completely vanishes um, and you you can't tell them apart until basically right before the movement and then at the time of the movement your classification accuracy just lurches right up to to near ceiling almost one yeah, so that some, that's really yeah subjects. that's that's very very compelling to me in the sense that um, you know it also tends to correspond much better as we were talking about before with you know the person's subjective experience of when they feel like they're uh, planning to make a movement. Yeah, on, on the you know yeah if if one were to want to be you know argumentative here, I, I mean one you know, might just say, again, you could still, you still have the, the null result issue, right? The sense that maybe there is some signal that's happening earlier, uh, but it's, it's just not being picked up well by the model, for example. 
that's always possible in this kind of approach to studying the problem that's that's just the reality yes someone could always say that um and the really the only answer to that is to say look we've we've in addition to doing this sort of control analysis we've done the very best we possibly can uh with the technology we have uh and been extremely uh careful and rigorous and uh, uh, and persistent in trying to find any difference we could before uh, the onset of movement. We used uh, a classifier uh, called Adaboost, uh, which, in fact, one of my co-authors uh, co-developed, Rob Shapira, who was the co-inventor of Adaboost, um, that is with with sufficient data. And I'll wave my hands a little bit as to exactly how much data that means. But with sufficient data, Adaboost actually offers some provable guarantees that if there is a difference between the uh, uh, positive and negative examples, with sufficient data, it will find it. Um, and that at least helps to reassure that combined with the fact that right at and after the onset of movement we can tell them apart at you know close to you know 99% correct uh i think those two things combined uh at least is compelling um it 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 never erases the argument that well this could just be a null result there's no I, way to I find erase it very that. compelling and uh, certainly the modeling work seems you know very very robust the one thing that I found a little challenging in understanding it, just in more, you know, purely from a intuition perspective, is comparing, you know, the the visual representation of the graphs of the readiness potential when you're, you know, looking at the time course in like Figure Two, where you're looking comparing active trials versus passive trials on average, and you can see that on average it does look like there is a difference in that time course between active and passive trials, then it becomes, you know, begs the question, well, what is causing that time course that is, that is that then not being picked up by the model? Right. Right. And I think some of the things that may qualify as, as, potential artifacts in our design or potential problems, I think they actually go in our favor because someone's going to say, oh, well, your conditions aren't that well matched. And in, in, in fact, they're not as well matched as you think they are, something like that. Well, if they're not so well matched, that's all the more reason for, for the classifier to find a difference and just further begs the question of why it didn't. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, no, I think it's, uh, I, I think it's super, super interesting and super compelling from that perspective. The fact that, you know, when you there's this result that has been you know discussed in the neuroscience literature for what over five decades now and yeah we're talking about the readiness potential something that is taught in introductory neuroscience courses and what you're suggesting and i think you know rightly so this is something that could be really an artifact of uh poor well an artifact of a particular experimental design rather than a true uh, 
underlying reality of the way the brain works. Yes, it's actually both. If so, so it's both. It's, it's the interaction between those two. It's an artifact of the approach of time locking to movement onset and the fact that uh, fluctuations in neural activity are autocorrelated, have that pink noise character. Um, so it, it's telling you something about both. Um, if, if brain noise, if, if brain fluctuations were white in character, then we wouldn't get this either. All right. So I'm wondering if we can zoom out a little bit with the time that we have remaining. One of the takeaways that we're getting here is that some decision-making processes are susceptible to random noise, especially if it's a, it's a, how do we say it's a precarious decision? Maybe that it could go one way or the other easily, uh, could be influenced by noise. So how do you you know how does this extend to other kinds of decisions or are there other other situations in kind of everyday life that we might be seeing the same kind of influence yeah i think so i think potentially it has relevance in all kinds of situations so wherever you have a a decision that's really close a really let's just say simply difficult decision that that's uh that's really like a tie so you're agonizing about it and you really feel the pull of both sides almost perfectly equally. Yeah. If you've heard the story of Bourdain's, uh, Bourdain's ass, Bourdain's donkey, well, it's, it's, he's just, he's caught between two piles of food and, and he dies because he can't decide. He dies of hunger. Because he's he right decide. on that fence and he just can't move himself right on that, that fence. fence. Um, and we always manage to break the symmetry. We don't die of hunger, right? So something happens that breaks the symmetry and and that could be it right that could we may make use of our own internal noise if you will we almost uh, uh, like a roll of the die that we can turn to if we need <laughs> if, if it's right it. in the edge yeah, yeah so it, and it, it could be almost a it could be a strategy to to direct a decision in this way to to make it so close that you kind of throw it up to chance right yeah, those would be the experimental circumstances that you'd want to cook up uh, in order to expose it, which is what Libet did, I think, or what Libet was aiming for. But yeah, um, I think one of the other areas where this could be relevant is in game theory, uh, and because there are cir circumstances, there are situations where it's uh, mm. it's adaptive, it's useful to be unpredictable rock paper scissors right so rock paper scissors um matching pennies uh-huh um sports very all, all you know all kind of sports um you know maybe uh this is a, a mechanism that helps to generate uh unpredictable behavior um it might and and what's interesting is that if this is uh if this is such a mechanism if it's used in that way uh, then in fact, your that behavior really is pretty unpredictable. It's unpredictable even to you, which could be it could be advantageous in some circumstances. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You could imagine. Uh, you know, I've thought. I don't. Know, I've thought about sports like uh, like soccer, European football. Uh, you know, where that where that could be a factor. Um, you know, you're head to head with someone, and are you gonna are you gonna cut to the left or cut to the right? Being unpredictable is a 
is an advantage. Is is an advantage, yeah. So there are contexts where it's an advantage to be unpredictable, and um, that has come up in game theory. And another another question that I I feel like I'm bound to ask is, I mean, certainly not everyone is convinced by Libet's experiments that there's some other precursor to free will, or that his experiments showed anything about the causal nature of free will. And I think a lot of neuroscientists might say, well, of course, there's something that precedes your your intention. There always has to be a cause of your intention to move or of anything you do for that matter. So how would you how would you think about this issue? Do you think do you think that Libet's experiments really don't have anything to do with free will? You said that maybe you you're moving away from thinking about these experiments like that. Um, you know, how does that sit? Right. Right. I think that the implications for free will that we originally uh, attributed to Libet's experiments, I, I think that those may have been misconstrued. And I'm not sure that it in fact has those implications for free will, given the way that we've explained the readiness potential. In other words, the implications for free will in Libet's experiment uh depend crucially on your interpretation of what the readiness potential means. And I think no one really stopped to carefully ask that question, well, what really does this readiness potential mean? Before we get onto this further question of about free will, uh, what does this temporal marker mean that we're using to make, uh, to, to draw conclusions about free will? Uh, so yeah, I think that Libet's experiment may not have the implications for free will that we have long thought it did. Now, if it, even if it even if it were not for so, just imagine in another reality that the readiness potential was perfectly predictive and uh, had none of the random properties that you talk about. Would you take this? Would you take Libet's experiments as as evidence against free will? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and it's one that I've thought a lot about because I think. Given the importance of the subject matter, free will, it's something that's very important to us uh, as uh, humans. Uh, I think we, we, we should, as scientists, think about, well, what, what criteria do we want to have before we start making de- declarations about the existence or non-existence of free will? Um, and I think that, you know, we expect, for sure, you expect a certain amount of purchase on the, the movement based on what's happening in advance of the movement. There's no doubt the movement from a scientific point of view does not just emerge out of thin air. Uh, it comes from the brain and the decision to move now is not completely divorced from what was happening in the brain a few milliseconds or tens or hundreds of milliseconds or even a few seconds earlier. So there is a causal chain of some sort. There's some sort of causal, let's call it a causal milieu. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that if I, if I use machine learning or other techniques, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up on that causal milieu. But that's going to give me a certain level of predictive power that's maybe better than chance, but not much, n- not perfect by any means, not even close. Better than chance we expect, given that interpretation. So what would count as evidence, what would, you know, be newsworthy from the point of view of free will is if yeah if if a second or two or even more 
in advance of the movement, I could consistently uh, predict what you're going to do and when you're going to do it uh, at you know 99% correct. We'll we'll, elite, we'll allow for something less than perfect because of let's say measurement error. Um, then that would that would require us to to take a step back and and ask the hard questions about well could is would this could could this possibly be compatible with something like conscious free will? So yes, there it, it let's say in theory it would be possible to come up with evidence that posed a really serious challenge to the idea of conscious free will. Um, but we don't have that kind of evidence yet. Well, I think that's a great, great place to leave things and just being respectful of your time. Uh, Aaron, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I think it's a great conversation and uh, thanks a lot. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks very much for, for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.